please open them to 1 John chapter 3. If you don't have your Bibles, it'll be behind me. We're going to start with verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. May God bless the reading of his word. As we continue on through 1 John, um, we continue on with this theme of love. We continue on with this dichotomy between darkness and light, love, hate, righteousness, and sin. And it's with this that John keeps on bringing us back and hammering away a specific point. And we're going to learn more about that today. So verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. John continues the motif of being a child of God. Similar to what we saw last week, John informs his readers the evidence of the children of God. He first does this by teaching a negative, that those who are born of God do not practice sinning. As we saw last week, even before that, um, to practice sinning implies a lifestyle of sin or a continual pattern of sin in one's life. Not just a simple mistake or a fall, a fall into sin, but a lifestyle which is evidence of sin. Now the reason why this is the case, why one cannot continue on in sin is this way, is because God's seed abides in him. There is some debate as to the focus of this. Some have held that this is the anointment which comes by the way of the Spirit. Others hold that it is the word or the gospel message which was preached. Um, In truth, there are elements of these things, but it may be better to understand this as we reflect believers' status as God's children. This makes sense from an Old Testament perspective when seed represents descendants. Therefore, to say that God's seed is in you is to say that you are a descendant of God, therefore you will act a certain way. And it is because of this status as a child of God that, again, one will not live a lifestyle of sin. Ultimately, being the progeny of God means that we will live in accordance to him and his statutes by walking as Jesus walked in the spirit, living according to his word for his glory, rather than living in perpetual sin. This leads us to verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 
John now focuses on the positive evidence. The evidence is often associated within the New Testament as the inner purpose of outward deeds. It is because of this he can make the dichotomy with the evidence by establishing who is a child of God versus who is a child of the devil. The first evidence concerns practicing righteousness. This represents the ethical duty to those who are children of God. We are called to live in righteousness, living according to Christ, the Spirit, and the Scriptures, which guide us in our understanding of what righteousness is and what is unrighteous. Yet along with this is a call to love. Those who do not love their brother, they are not children of God. Brother here does not necessarily mean blood relations. Instead, it represents the community of believers. In Christ, we are called brothers and sisters to each other and to Christ. To not love a brother or sister of Christ is to show evidence that one is not truly then a child of God. Now verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We now see that love will become the dominant focus for the next few verses. Before that, however, we notice that John reminds them that this message is what they've heard from the beginning. The message is the gospel, and from the beginning represents what they heard and believed. One then wonders why John mentions love. The answer likely has to do with this schism that has occurred. Oftentimes, schisms can cause resentment. John seeks to assuage such an attitude of strife among the congregation by reminding them that love is foundational for the Christian faith. Without love, we cannot truly be called Christian. Verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the devil, of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his right, brother's righteous. So the question we want to ask ourselves, what would be the opposite of love? Well, to not love or to hate. John uses an Old Testament story story to illustrate what it means for one to hate by reflecting on Cain and Abel from Genesis 4. As we remember, Cain and Abel sacrificed to God and only Abel's sacrifice was found acceptable. Ultimately, this caused resentment and hatred to rise up in Cain, leading him to murder his brother. John recognizes that the rejection of Cain by God stemmed from his own evil deeds. This this is recognized in Genesis when we read, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. We notice that it is, if you do well, Will you not be accepted? That is the point John is making here. Our lives, our deeds, are the evidence of who we belong to. If we live in unrighteousness and hatred as Cain, then it is obvious that we are of the devil, just as Cain was. Yet, if we love our brothers and sisters of the faith, if we live righteously as Abel did, then the evidence points to being born of God. Verse 13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Reflecting on the righteousness by which they ought to live, John gives them fair warning that they should be unsurprised that the world would hate them. This is a reflection of Jesus' own teaching in John 15, when he informed the disciples that since the world hated him, it would also hate them as well. 
Likewise, world here does not denote the natural world, but instead represents the domain of sin, darkness, the devil. It may also represent those who have left the community and are causing strife by teaching false doctrines. They belong to the world being antichrist in nature, as John has said previously. Thus, they should not be surprised to be hated by the world, either by the world outside of the community or by antichrist teachers and antichrist followers. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. John continues with assurance that we have passed out of death into life reflects the gospel. Those who belong to Christ have passed from death to life through the blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanses from both guilt of sin and a sinful lifestyle. It allows us to live for God rather than sin. Love is the dominant evidence of this passing. It should not be assumed that love is the cause of our passing from life to death. If we notice John specifically says, passed out, it's it's past tense. We can know that we have passed out because we love our brothers and our sisters of the faith. Logically, the opposite of practicing love is to not love, and this is evidence that one does not abide in life, but abides in death. Therefore, the dichotomy continues between, again, all these things, righteousness and unrighteousness, light and darkness, love, hate, death, and life. Now we come to verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. The focus now is not on love, but hate. John recognizes hate is antithetical to the Christian faith and lifestyle. He goes so far as to say, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. This reflects Jesus' statement on the Sermon of the Mount when he said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Do both Jesus and John mean this literally? It sounds rather harsh. The truth is that from a person-to-person relationship, hating someone is rather different than killing them. The problem comes when we reflect on on it from a sinful and a righteous God perspective. To hate a brother in the faith is the same to God as murdering that brother in the end. It is self-evident to conclude that the one who hates their brother or sister in Christ is a murderer. Then clearly no murderer has eternal life abiding in them because they hate the brother and therefore don't have love. Hatred then is the opposite of love for John, and the one who abides in hatred rather than love cannot also abide in eternal life, which is Christ. Further, one cannot claim to be a Christian and yet hate the brothers and sisters of the Christian community. That's what John is teaching. Verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Question again. How do we know what love is? We know it because of the example Jesus sets for us. He laid down his life for us. Though we were yet sinners, with no love for God, his righteousness um, and his love, we, we didn't have his righteousness, we had no love for God, his righteousness, or his love for those who belong to him. Still he laid down his life for us, even though we were in such a perilous, evil state. Though we were undeserving, Christ laid down his life for us. 
So Christ is the foundation for our understanding of love. Just as Jesus laid down his life for us, for you and I, we should lay down our lives for each other. We are to serve one another in love. Yet even further, we are to even lay down our lives for each other if it comes to that. What is our motivation? Not necessarily other believers per se, but the one who laid down his life for us. Christ's sacrifice is our standard, and it is the foundation by which we are to love. Verse 17, But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? John now gives an example of those who do not love. He begins by describing the person in three ways. The first is that the individual has the world's goods. This means that the individual is materially well off. This is, in itself, not a bad thing. God can bless individuals in different ways, and one of the ways may be materially. Likewise, it does not necessarily mean that they are exceedingly rich like the rich young ruler was who encountered Christ. Instead, it represents one who has more than enough, however that much might be. It might be a whole lot, or it just might be more than they need to get by. The second is that this individual sees a brother who is in need. This understanding of need is often represented in the New Testament, such as the need of certain congregations, which is why Paul collected an offering, or how Barnabas and Paul were encouraged not to neglect the poor. Such individuals may be those who are going through hard times, are in need of some special assistance in some way, whether financially or some other way physically. Now the third is that the individual closes his heart against the poorer brother. This lack of care by lack of giving, is evidence of hating one's brother rather than loving one's brother. Just as with Cain, who acted out his hatred, so too those who neglect to care for their brother or sister when they are in need and when they are able to help. So John asks, how does God's love abide in the individual who does this? The answer is, it doesn't. We then come to the final verse of today, verse 18. Little children... Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This naturally leads to John finishing the section by encouraging his little children to not only love in word or talk, but also in deed and truth. In other words, yes, speaking kindly and in love is important, but if we are not also living in love, then all of our talk is in vain. We are not only called to a sensation or feelings, but also to enact out our love through our deeds. This kind of love, which is in deed and in truth, is the evidence that we have passed from death to life, and that we are children of God, as it represents the same kind of love as the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who enacted out His love by dying on the cross for us. So the main point, of this section is that John wants to show a dichotomy between those who are children of God and children of the devil. The children of the devil will live in a way which is in strife, unrighteousness, and hatred, in word and in deed. Those who are children of God, however, will live in word, love in word, deed, and truth. Yet the foundation is not love itself or the enacting of love, but Christ, who is the ultimate example of love for believers. Now this leads us to our application points. Righteousness and love. We have learned repeatedly through the scriptures, and especially here in 1 John, that those who belong to Christ will live as Christ lived, or walk as Christ walked. 
Earlier in today's text, John focuses on this by informing his readers that the evidence of those who belong to the faith is their practice of righteousness and love for brothers and sisters of the faith. In this way, we can live as Christ lived. So it seems important to spend some time considering these two points, righteousness and love. The first of these, righteousness, represents an ethical lifestyle. If we belong to God, we will live a lifestyle which is congruent with the scriptures. Conversely, this means that we will not live in sin. We will not seek to practice sin if we are in Christ. Sin is antithetical to righteousness. As it is immoral, it is unethical, and it is unrighteous by nature. Therefore, to know what sin is, is just as important as knowing what righteousness is. If we know what sin is, then we can be sure that the opposite of sin is righteousness and vice versa. So what is sin? Sin is breaking the law, missing the mark set forth by God according to his word for our lives. The law is what informs us of the ethical standard by which we are to live according to God. We find the standard throughout the law, but the backbone of the law is the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20, 3-17 we read, You have... You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servants or your livestock or the sojourner who is in your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. In these, we find what is righteous living, And because of that, we also find what is considered unrighteousness. It is unrighteous to have other gods before God. It is not righteous to make idols. It is um, not righteous to murder, commit adultery. We can keep going with this, but we get the point. We sin when we break these commandments and the rest of the law. Now, I know some of you may be wondering, what about the laws concerning sacrifice? How can we maintain righteous living if we do not sacrifice? The answer to this is the entire book of Hebrews. (laughs) Um, There we find Christ as the eternal high priest of the order of Melchizedek, who sheds his own blood in and on the sacred places. His sacrifice, then, is altogether sufficient. We do not need to make sacrifices anymore because Christ's blood is enough. His sacrifice is enough for all of our sins, past, present, and future. This is how we can 
still understand the law in light of Christ. We can look to the law as a means of understanding what is both righteous and unrighteous. It is only through Jesus that such compliance and understanding with the law can be attained, because he is, as the author of Hebrews says, therefore he is the moderator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Yet it is not only the law by which we can know what is righteous, but we also have been given the Old Testament as a whole, and in that the prophets and the writings. Where does all this lead? To Christ. Just as he himself spoke, then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Because he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, we can and should Look to him and how we are to walk and live. We do this by reflecting on his life and his teachings. He is our shepherd, and it is by him we can know where to take our steps in accordance with the will of the Father. I think we can all agree with the idea that living in righteousness is a necessity for the Christian faith. Yet we also see that love for brothers, for those who are members of the faith, is also a necessity. Love is very important for us because Christ himself loved us before we loved him. By him we do not only know how to walk in righteousness, but also how we are to love one another. This love will cause us to treat each other in kindness, patience, and understanding. It will teach us not to be haughty above our brothers and sisters of the faith who may not be living um, as righteously or as perfectly or as well as we are or who may have greater struggles than we do. We won't look down upon them because of that. Sometimes it can be easy for those of us, or for those who are, righteous to have a big head, or to lord over others because of their righteousness. The scriptures, however, teach against this by reminding us that those who are children of God will not only live in that righteousness, but will have love toward the brothers and sisters of the faith. So we see the ethical in the call of righteous living, but we also see the relational in our call to love. Despite what many believe, we are not called to live our lives of faith alone, separate from one another. We are to be connected to one another in love. This love, as we have seen in 1 John and in the Gospels, is founded not on mere emotion, nor even on acts per se, but on Jesus Christ. We cannot simply define love however we want to. Love is already defined by God through his son, Jesus Christ. The encouragement in this is for us to seek to live righteously in love according to Christ. He is the foundation for all of our lifestyles, giving us an example by which we are to live. Though we can never attain perfection in this life, this does not excuse us from living in accord with the will of the Father set forth by his son, Jesus Christ, according to the scriptures. So seek righteousness. Seek love. Do not be discouraged when you fail, but be encouraged to look to Christ. He is our example, true, but he is also our comfort when we do fail. He will never let us go, and he will continue to guide us ever more into glory of his Father and more into his Father's will. So be courageous, because we learn in today's text that those who do live in Christ will be hated. But the hatred of the world is worth the cost of the infinite grace and love we find in God. Now this leads us to our second point, which kind of piggybacks from that one. Love for brothers and sisters. As we can see, 
John today specifically mentioned the recipients of the love which is to be given, and that is the brothers, and again sisters, technically. In fact, the major focus of love in these verses is the love we have for each other in the faith. This love will translate not only in words, but also in deeds, which is the point John makes at the end of the section. This theme of love for the family of God is not only found here in 1 John. It is also found when we read James, who says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James agrees with John that love, faith, for brothers and sisters of the faith will be made evident through our deeds, our acts. Notice, it is not merely in praying for them or giving them an encouraging word, but helping them in their times of need. Sometimes we can think that Christianity is is a separation between the spiritual and the physical, but the truth is that both are important for Christianity. And to only help one in times of spiritual need, but not physical, goes against Christian understanding of the physical world being redeemed by Christ, just as the spiritual is redeemed by Christ. That said, it is not only in the New Testament that this kind of teaching is made known. Consider what is said in Deuteronomy. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, You shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say, The seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you shall give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you, and you be found guilty of sin." You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudgingly begrudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land, therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother and to the needy and the poor in your land. As we can see here, There is a clear commandment to take care of each other within the community. Those who are well off or those who have enough are to support those who do not have enough. A final place we look concerning this is Leviticus, which says, If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God, who bought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan, and to be your God. If your brother becomes your poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go forth from you, and he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possessions of his fathers. For you are my servants, for they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but you shall fear your God. And that's Leviticus twenty-five thirty-five through 43 In this passage... We find a few reasons why it is that they are to treat their brothers 
in this way. First, we notice that they are to do it out of fear of God. Part of this fear of God is shown in verse 38 where we are learned, or where we learn, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan to be your God. In other words, because God has given to them, they are to give to each other when one is in need. The foundation is again God and what he does and not each other. We then see this continued in verses 39 through 42 when they are told, that those who are brothers are not to be sold as slaves. The reason why they are not to be sold as slaves because they are God's servants whom he brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. They shall not be ruled over ruthlessly, but ultimately they shall all fear, the go- for, fear God. God, again, is the foundation for this understanding of compassion and love. By taking care of the poor, they are fearing God who took care of them. Now, in all of these verses, there is something which needs to be understood. In all of these passages, we find this command to care for the poor, to love each other in more than word, but also in deed. I think that we can all say amen to this. This is good. We should love each other like this. However, we want to refrain from something, and that is applying these passages to places where they are not meant to be. In other words, these commands in both the Old and the New Testaments are focused on the community, not those outside of the community. In 1 John, for example, the focus is on love for brothers, not for everyone. The same is true of James. The focus is on love for brothers and sisters in need, not for everyone. Even in the Old Testament, when a brother is in need, there are different courses to take than, let's say, if one who is not a member of the community were in need. Sometimes we can assume that we are to love everyone equally, and in some sense we are to love everyone by treating them in love in accordance with 1 Corinthians 13. However, When it comes to loving by deed, the apostles make it clear that our first and primary focus should be those within the community of believers. Those who are in need among you, among us, should be where the majority of our resources and energies go. This does not mean that we do not care for social justice or those who are in need outside of the congregation. It simply means that our brothers and sisters are to be taken care of first before any other. In this way, we show our love for each other when we care for one another in accordance with the scriptures. Once we have cared for each other, then we can care for those outside of the assembly. But even then, we, when in need, our brothers and sisters come first. Because as the Old Testament says, they are the servants of God. And now, brothers and sisters of Christ in the New Testament, they are children of God. So be encouraged to take care for one another in love. Don't let love be love just in word. Instead, let love be made known in word and deed among us. Our actions speak volumes. And when we love each other in all ways, not just in pieces, then we have the evidence of the love of God within us going outward toward one another. At the same time, it means that we are to be honest with one another. This is sometimes hard to do. I know for myself I have a very hard time asking for help in times of need. I suppose the greatest reason for this is pride. Whoever wants to admit to having a need? I know, does anyone like to admit to that? Mike's like, no. <laughs> but if there is a place where we should feel safe to ask for help, it should be here amongst each other. Because we are all brothers and sisters of Christ. And we know that whatever goods or whatever wealth we have comes from God as a blessing to us. What greater way to show we are thankful than by caring for his servants, caring for his children. Likewise, 
Those to whom God is blessed do not forget what John says. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes their heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? I bring this back into reflection because there are those who think, oh, well, they didn't ask me for help, so I don't need to help. All the while, it is very obvious that the individual is in need. Don't harden your hearts. There are individuals who will refuse to help anyone unless they grovel first. This is terribly anti-loving, and it is reminiscent of what was said in Leviticus. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly. Few things can be more ruthless than making someone feel completely and totally worthless before you help them. Also, be wise, both the giver and the receiver. We do not want to be receivers who presume too greatly upon others, lest we forget our faith and trust in God. Likewise, givers should ask for wisdom in how much to give and who to give to. Sometimes even those who should ask um, or who should claim Christ can be using their gifts and um, what they've been given for wrong purposes. But consider what Paul says. So if you have such cases, why do you not lay them before those who have no standing in the church. Why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute among the brothers? But brothers go to law against brothers, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers." And that's from 1 Corinthians 6, 4 through 8. So if you do feel defrauded, just remember that, that statement. <laughs> that sometimes it is better to be defrauded than to not show love to one another. Ultimately, trust God to lead in both instances. When in need and when you're able to give. He will lead us correctly if we seek Him. Um, and ultimately, that's where we have to go. Remember, the foundation for all of this is Jesus Christ. Just as John noted, it is because Christ gave to us, we should be willing to give to each other. The primary motivation for us to love one another, to look after one another, is not necessarily for the brother or sister. Simply put, they are human. They're going to make mistakes. I know I've made mistakes. I know that all of you have too. And it's hard to love people who make mistakes, isn't it? However... What causes us to give freely should be God himself because he does not make mistakes and he has given freely to us. He is the reason we give. He is the reason we love because he first gave to us and he first loved us. Now we have one final point before we get to the gospel and that's family. One thing to consider from this passage is the way that John speaks about those within the community. Um, We notice he calls them brothers. This goes along the same familial lines as when he calls them children or little children. Ultimately, we see a strong sense of family among the communities, which makes sense when we consider ourselves in light of Christ. And it's with this that I want to turn to our fathers within the congregation. Today we do celebrate Father's Day. Today we give thanks to our fathers who have sacrificed, worked, and given so much for their families. We give thanks for those who have gone to great lengths to show their love for their families in different ways. Along with that, we also give thanks to those who are our spiritual fathers, those men in the congregation who have labored over us, prayed over us, and for us, and with us, those who have stood firm on the foundation of Jesus Christ to give us something to aspire to and to look up to.
I said this during Mother's Day, and I will say it again during Father's Day. I am thankful that th- for this congregation, because, uh, because as it has given me many mothers, it has also given me many fathers. Men who have been in the faith, who have loved their families, men I can look up to as I continue to grow older. Um, each and every one of you has played a part in shaping me personally. When I think of all of you, I cannot give enough thanks for this very important feature each of you possesses, and that is a reflection of our Father in Heaven. We who are fathers have the perfect example to follow, and I am thankful that I have men here who I can look up to while they themselves continue to look up to God. So it is on behalf of those whom you have taught, those within the church, and those of your own children, that I, we, give thanks. Be encouraged in the blessing the Lord has given you through your families. And know that as time progresses, your influence does not end so easily. It continues on to the next generation and the generation after. And on behalf of those generations, I give thanks to God for these men. For they have given us strong shoulders on which to stand. So again, on behalf of all of us, I say thank you and we love you. So thank you men. Appreciate it. All right. Well, I think that we can all see how these things tie into the gospel. It is through the gospel we have these healthy relationships. It is through the gospel we have learned to love and to care for one another in the faith. It is because of the gospel we can now be called children of God and live according to his word. This gospel begins with our origins. God created all the cosmos by the power of his word. Last of all, he created humanity to bear his image. Because God is a God of love, of reason, because he knows he can be known, has personhood, morality, and shows Hesed, we can as well. Likewise, it is here that we find sanctity, dignity, and worth to all human life. Yet like God, we are also able to choose. We could either follow God in obedience and life or follow sin into disobedience and death. We chose the latter and have continued to make that choice ever since. Because of this, our relationships with God, ourselves, each other, and the world are all broken. It is because of sin that we continue to accrue a greater moral guilt before our God every day. Not a feeling of guilt, but true guilt before a righteous God. God could have left us in the state, but instead he sent the crux of the gospel. He sent his light and his word into the darkness, and that was his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the only begotten son of God lived, died, and rose again in time, space, history, and flesh. By his blood we are cleansed for our sin. By his sacrifice we have propitiation so that we are no longer under the wrath of God. And by him we are made righteous before our God. Our relationships are being restored. And through his victory in life over death, we can have victory in life and over death. All that is required of us is two things. The first is repentance. We are to turn away from our sin and turn toward God. We are to live in a lifestyle which bears good fruit according to the word of God. We are to walk in step with the Spirit, walking as Jesus walked in righteousness and love. We are to turn our love from our sins toward God and each other. Likewise, we are to have faith in Christ. We must recognize our complete and total dependence upon the Son of God for our salvation. We must recognize our inability to attain the glory of God by our own deeds, and that it is not what we do, but what Christ has done which saves us. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. 
If we remain in disobedience in these things, we will only experience condemnation. And none can stand before God with only their deeds in hand. For only Christ is completely righteous, while even our greatest deeds are as filthy rags. None can stand before God apart from the advocacy of Jesus Christ the righteous. Because of this, any who go before God apart from Christ go to judgment. Yet, if we are obedient to God in these things, we will find no condemnation. Instead, we find the love of God reserved only for His Son, Jesus Christ, in this way becoming children of God. We find victory over sin, the world, and the devil in this life. We become co-heirs of an eternal kingdom, where we will experience the peace of God forevermore. My encouragement to you is to remember to walk in righteousness and love, to speak in love toward one another and practice love toward one another, to give thanks for the gospel which allows us to live a lifestyle congruent with our Father in heaven. Finally, I encourage all of you to give thanks for our physical and spiritual fathers. They are a great blessing to us, and like our mothers, worthy of honor among us. Amen. Let us go to Lord in prayer. Father, again we thank you for what you have done through your Son, Jesus Christ. It is by him and his righteousness that we too become righteous, and it is by him that we become your children. And so, Lord, let us go out into the world and celebrate as your children. And, Lord, let us also remember those who have come before us, those fathers of ours who have watched over us, whom you have given us to lead us further into your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for them. And, Lord, let us celebrate these individuals who you have given us. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.